Today's reading is from um, Leviticus 1, starting at verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priest, priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the side of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. You are to cut it into pieces, and the priest shall arrange them, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to bring all of them and burn them on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained on the side of the altar. He is to move the crop and the feathers and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely, and then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Thanks, Nicole. We're just going to have a little hiatus and then we're going to read the next six chapters. No, we we won't be doing that. Uh, Were we to consider each of these chapters uh, each week, we'd probably be able to dive into a lot of the details uh, that we find in uh, the sacrificial laws. Uh, But because we're looking at all the five offerings in one hit today, uh, we're going to have to be a lot more broad Uh, So I hope you don't mind if I don't answer any of those really pressing questions about, you know, why splashing blood on the side of the altar and things like that. But um, perhaps we can have a discussion afterwards. Uh, Human beings do have an instinct to make sacrifices. Uh, This is not just a, a biblical or religious thing that we're talking about. You know, parents make sacrifices for their children, For example, you know, they might choose to live sparingly so that they can pay for their kids' education. Uh, People make sacrifices for their country. For example, risking their lives in its defence. And we can see a lot of that happening over in the Ukraine at this time. So many people coming to the defence of their country. 
But in many ways, I think this is a contrast to what might be our usual way of living, our transactional approach to life. Or, or I don't know, maybe deep down, those sorts of things still do have a transactional motivation. You know, maybe we give up something today with the expectation that future generations will kind of pay it back. They'll live up to it. They'll honour it somehow. They'll do it justice. But in other ways, gifts are often given in exchange or with an expectation of return. Helping somebody, uh, we might feel, puts them in uh, our, our sort of uh, debt for future favours. Uh, taxes are offered or, or perhaps we see them as taken, but they go with the expectation of services that are provided in return from the government. And maybe, just maybe, we tithe with the same mindset. We'll get something back. And I wonder if we see the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings in the same way, that rather than a relationship or a covenant context, they are about a bargain or a contract. You know, people offer sacrifices, God offers protection and blessing in return. And so we might ask, well, what can I offer to get in God's, God, God's good books? What can I offer in order to earn His favour, especially for, you know, some day in the future where I'll really need it? And I want to phrase the question this way this morning, because as we look at all five of these offerings, we might ask that, you know, what, what can I offer? Today, you know, I don't offer animals, I don't cut them up into little pieces and burn them on an altar, so what can I offer? And hopefully what we discover is that in Jesus, the answer is nothing, but it's also everything. But before we jump in, we do need to acknowledge that this is not a level playing field. Not at all. You know, God and us, we are not on equal footing. All of these offerings, all of them, were to express the unworthiness and the dependence of the worshipper, their weakness before God, and of course, the worthiness and the provision of God. That's what they were about. So let's start with the burnt offering, chapter 1 of Leviticus. What can I offer to be accepted by God? That's what this first offering is about. It's about acceptance. It's about uh, being welcomed into God's presence. Uh, It's about atonement, which we considered last week. But very broadly speaking, you know, God covering our sinfulness and making us acceptable to Him. Uh, This is a sacrifice with quite a broad purpose. It seeks for us to coexist with God and to please God. God. And this sacrifice at the time, it could be offered by anyone. Uh, Usually it was done so in the mornings and in the evenings, and it was the only offering that was like totally consumed by fire. Just something to note there. Uh, The other offerings had leftovers, this one was completely burned up. Last week I gave uh, the example of a dinner party uh, and the etiquette that goes with that. There's expectations. And we could easily liken this offering to perhaps the dress code. Uh, Because meeting the dress code, that's what makes you acceptable to uh, a party, isn't it? If you wear dirty clothes, 
to a formal function, it, it makes you unacceptable. Uh, and if you wear regular clothes to like a dress-up, well, people might not say it, but they're thinking, oh, that's unacceptable. He didn't even put in the effort. But perhaps this, this dress code, this helps us to understand a little bit Jesus' fulfillment of this offering. For Scripture says, He clothes us in righteousness. He gives us bright, clean, fine linen to wear for the party. And He makes us acceptable to our host, which is God. One of the greatest paradoxical images, I think, of the Bible is that Jesus' blood washes us clean. Uh, It makes us whiter than snow, is what the Bible says. You know, blood, it normally stains material, doesn't it? Especially white material. But in Christ, blood removes our stains instead. So what can I offer to be accepted by God? Well, nothing. Jesus has done it through His atoning sacrifice on the cross. He is the one who makes us acceptable. We can't do it. He makes us acceptable. All we can do is accept that. Accept the clothing that He gives us to humbly acknowledge that our own outfit or perhaps our own offerings or our own worship is not good enough. Unlike the man at the end of the Uh, parable in Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding banquet, uh, who rocks up to the party in the wrong clothes and the host goes up to him and says, what are you doing in here with those clothes? And he boots him out into the darkness. Unlike him, we need to approach God in the right clothing, which is the atonement of Christ. And we're going to come back to that one in a little bit. The second offering then is, in chapter 2, what's called the grain offering, also known as the meal offering, like, you know, whole meal, uh, or even the cereal offering, although I don't think it's talking about bringing a bowl of cornflakes to God. Although, you can. But in this one, the question is, uh, what can I offer to show devotion to God? To show devotion to God. This was a sacrifice of dedication, a sacrifice of loyalty and commitment and and ultimately gratitude. It expressed this devotion to God by by offering oneself, coming to Him at, at at the tabernacle and then also by giving our best or our first to God. And just as a side note, I think it can be so much better to use the word first instead of best, because while best can be subjective, you know, I'm going to give to God like the best of what's left over, first is objective. The first is the first, always. It always puts God first. And yet this offering was often known uh, in the time as the poor man's offering, uh, because it wasn't asking for animals or livestock, it was asking for, you know, grains and It was a vegetarian offering, basically. But it was generally less costly. But again, that was so that anybody could bring this before God. And God allowed variety in what people could bring because He didn't want hindrances based on wealth and status and things like that. And perhaps it reminds us a little bit of uh, the poor widow in the Gospels, whom Jesus kind of 
points out. This widow who gives so very little when compared with everybody else, but who gives so much when compared with what she has. Two copper coins and it's everything. It's her first, it's her best, it's, it's everything. And so it is with Christ, isn't it? He gives his whole life. He impoverishes himself completely so that we can be spiritually rich. His devotion to God and, and also to us is, is total. His priorities are unquestionable, aren't they? So what about us? You know, we human beings, we naturally put our passions first, don't we? That, that's how we roll. Whatever excites us, whatever we love, whatever we're devoted to, whatever gives us joy, that is what we prioritize. That is what we give our first to or our best. So what are you giving your first to? Is it to God? Or is it to your work? Or to your family? Is it to making money? Or building a reputation? Is it just to the time you can spend on your screens? When we ask that question, what can I offer to show my devotion to God? Well, in many ways, the answer, the answer is still nothing. Jesus, He does that for us. He showed 1,000% commitment in His death and resurrection on our behalf so that we could be rich. But the point is, His incredible offering, His incredible sacrifice, that is to excite us more than anything else in life. That is to be our greatest joy. Our gratitude for Jesus should be our highest passion in, in all of life. He must be our first love. And so the answer really is also everything. Because thanksgiving for the gospel... Thanksgiving for the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is to be all-consuming. Our dedication is to be unquestionable, is to be unwavering, because Christ has given us everything. And our lives are defined by Him. And so then this thanksgiving takes us to the next offering in chapter 3. Uh, which is the fellowship offering, or otherwise known as the peace offering. And it's not so much about gaining peace with God, but what can I offer to celebrate peace with God? To celebrate it for what it's worth. And it comes back to the relationship stuff that we talked about last week, being in fellowship and communion with God. This, I think, was one of the most positive sacrifices uh, that Israel offered, uh, celebrating in every way, you know, peace between God and man, but also peace with each other, fellowship with each other. And this is a good place to remember that the whole sacrificial system, and God designed it like this, it was about worship, yes, but it was also about fellowship with one another. Uh, a bit like we have on a Sunday. 
It's about worship, but it's also essentially, critically about fellowship too. Most of the offerings in those days, they would have meat left over, sometimes for the priests, um, that was their provision, but also uh, for the people to enjoy, to feast on, to celebrate. And there's a reason I keep coming back to this illustration of like a dinner party, because uh, Scripture is full of that imagery. All the way through, you know, feasts and festivals in the Old Testament law. Uh, Jesus, when He came eating and drinking with with basically everybody that he ministered to. Uh, and the aforementioned wedding banquet, which describes that, you know, ultimate celebration at the end of the age. But perhaps the greatest pointer is the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, where we see Jesus sitting at the table there in relationship with his disciples, communing over a meal, and then revealing himself to be the very food and drink that we celebrate with. He is the very content of the meal. So Jesus is, as we saw last week, the sacrifice who is tragically slaughtered. He is the Lamb of God, but He's also the provided sustenance and the the delightful food with which we rejoice over and give thanks for. Why? Because He is our peace with God. He is our reconciliation. He is our restored relationship. He is the meal of our fellowship. What can I offer to celebrate peace with God? Well, really, it's just a humble willingness to appreciate and enjoy what Jesus has already given which is Himself, as well as surrendering to it. That's still needed. You know, if you, uh, if you go to someone's house and they put a delicious meal in front of you, uh, you don't reject that, do you? You dig in. You enjoy it. You eat it with gratitude and delight. You kind of give yourself over to it. And this is all we can do. All we can offer for peace with God, it's gratitude, it's delight, it's enjoyment, it's appreciation. You know, l'chaim, to life, prost, cheers. That's what we should be saying to each other. I often wish we could do that over the Lord's Supper, but I think sometimes we, we feel like it might be a bit sacrilege or something. But it's rejoicing. Next up then in, in chapter 4 and a bit of chapter 5 is the sin offering. This is the Uh, the sacrifice we considered last week, the first goat on the Day of Atonement. What can I offer to be forgiven by God? Uh, This was a sacrifice of purification from sin. Uh, But particularly, as you read through that chapter, and if you didn't get to do that this past week, I encourage you maybe to go away and still do that. As well as chapters 8 to 10, yeah, it's a fair bit of reading there, but it's, it's good stuff. But particularly for the unintentional sins of the community. Uh, last week I likened the Day of Atonement to like an annual spring clean. And, and the idea about spring cleans is that they are uh, needed for particularly less obvious dirt in the house, aren't they? 
you know, stuff that we don't usually notice. So there's the, there's the dust behind the couches, there's kind of that build-up of grease and grime on top of the kitchen cabinets. Uh, there's maybe a congregation of junk that gets into your third kitchen drawer or maybe your top buffet, depending where that drawer is for you. Everybody's got one. All that kind of stuff. And so it is with our unintentional sins or even the sins that we are ignorant of. Just because they're not obvious, just because we can't see them, or just because we didn't mean to make that mess, whoops, it was an accident, that doesn't mean it's not dirty. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be cleaned up. This is also one of the things I've learned a lot recently about toddlers. No matter how clean they look at first glance, that's just not the case. There's always this unintentional, unobvious Dirt, there's sand in crazy places, food where it has no right to be, blood from an injury you didn't even know existed, and it all needs to be cleaned. And so it is with sin. God isn't just against the intentional or obvious sins, He is against all sin. He cannot have it in His presence. He sees all the hidden pockets of our souls. He knows every single fault of ours, even if we don't. And I think that if we did know all of those hidden sins, then we would probably go insane from the confronting awareness of it. Just how pervasive it is. Just how heavy it is. But no matter how pervasive that sin is, God's grace is more so. Jesus' sacrifice, as is pointed to in this sacrifice, is it purifies us from all sin, both from the intended sins and the unintended sins, the obvious sins and the hidden sins. He cleans the dirt that we know about, but also cleans the dirt we don't know, we're ignorant of. What can I offer to be forgiven by God? Well, nothing. Again, because Jesus purifies us by His own blood. As He says at the supper, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. And in Colossians 2 verse 13, it states it's all sins. All of our sins. All we can offer is our surrender. Our admission of helplessness. Perhaps to think of it this way, and if there's any image you want to take with you into the week, perhaps it's this one. To be washed like babies in a bath. Because there's no other way for us to get clean. And we are relying completely on the one who washes us. To be washed like babies in a bath. Plus, there's one other thing we can offer, which we're going to discover here in this last offering. Uh, The guilt offering uh, in the second part of chapter 5. We may phrase it like this, what can I offer to pay restitution to God? Uh, This was a sacrifice to remind the people of the price of their sin, but also the price of grace, the price of making amends. 
a reminder that payment must be made when a debt is created. Sin is our debt before God. And it cannot be dismissed. It costs something. In fact, it costs a great deal. And if we don't see it in our own lives, we're reminded, for example, in what John prayed for before, the shooting in America. Sin is extremely costly. Back then it was a regular offering of rams, uh, as well as restitution made uh, to any party for things stolen or cheated or wrong that's done, uh, often with interest as well. But now, the price is paid by Jesus Christ. It's not a dismissed debt, and I emphasise that, it's not dismissed It's not forgotten, it is a forgiven debt. It is all about the grace that took Jesus to the cross. And that grace is costly. It is not cheap. And that's the point of this offering. Think about it, if you get a gift from someone, perhaps it's your birthday or your anniversary and somebody gives you a gift, that gift doesn't cost you anything, does it? It's free as far as you're concerned. But that doesn't make it any less valuable or costly, just that you didn't pay for it. Somebody else did. And so if you only care about yourself, you might take that gift and think, well, I didn't pay for this, so I'll just treat it carelessly, do what I want with it, who cares? But if you care about others, and in particular, If you care about the person who gave it to you, you will treat it with great worth, with great care. And in fact, it adds value because it was a gift, doesn't it? So it is with grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about grace. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it cost God the life of His Son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. And above all, it's grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. What can I offer to pay restitution to God? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Upon your very first sin, or the nature of your sinfulness, from the beginning of your life, the debt was too much for you to pay. Only Jesus can pay it. Only He can make amends. Only He can offer restitution. But we can and must pay repentance. That is our sacrifice. That is our offering. That is the one more thing 
that I talked about before. We must acknowledge the weight of our sin and the cost of grace and the price that Jesus paid and repent of that sin. And so in many ways, it still costs us everything. We have to turn from our self-reliance and give up our earthly lives in order to turn to Jesus and follow Him. And as we talked about last week, that means denying ourselves. But in that, we gain everything and more. Jesus' gift is truly priceless. And I think this is a great place to sum up all those sacrifices, all those offerings in the light of Christ because He fulfills every single one of them. He is offered for our acceptance. He's offered for our dedication, for our peace, for our forgiveness and for our restitution. We cannot offer a single thing that would add to what Jesus has done. Nothing. And yet we're called to offer everything. Because our admission of spiritual bankruptcy, our acknowledgement of the need to surrender, and our acceptance of costly grace, well, that is everything. There's no partial acceptance. It's full. It's everything. So what can we do, or what can we offer to God? Well, Jesus makes us acceptable so that we can praise Him and worship Him, as we're doing here this morning. Jesus' devotion is on our behalf so that we can live in all-consuming thanksgiving. Jesus gives us peace peace with God so we can enjoy it, enjoy fellowship with Him and with each other. Jesus forgives our sin and washes us clean so that we can just surrender and accept that cleansing in every part of our lives. And Jesus pays our restitution to God so that we can know the weight of, cost of sin and grace and find freedom in repentance. Animal sacrifices are no longer necessary for us as Christians. Jesus' sacrifice is final. His was the last blood to be shed for any of these purposes. But these purposes, they stay with us. Because disciples are, in Paul's words, living sacrifices, which means our entire lives are about worship, thanksgiving, fellowship, surrender, repentance, and the beautiful atonement of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray?
Father, we want to confess to you our unworthiness, our sin, our selfishness, our weakness, our brokenness. We acknowledge, Lord, that we are spiritually dirty and that nothing we do can fix that. But we also profess that in Jesus, you make us clean. In Jesus, we are accepted into your presence. In Jesus, we are wholly devoted and committed to you. In Jesus, we have peace and reconciliation with you. And in Jesus, all our debts are paid. And we thank you for Jesus. We pray, Lord, that any worship we bring, any fellowship we offer to each other, to you, is not about trying to earn acceptance or your favour. It's not about trying to show a commitment that we just don't have. It's not about trying to make up for our own guilt and sin. But it might just be about thanksgiving, praise, honour to you who saves us who picks us up, cleans us off, and gives us life. May these be our living sacrifices, these lives you've given us. And may we honour you and glorify you in all that we do. Amen.